I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Wow, that's a great line, isn't it? Please find your way to Romans uh, chapter 3. There is a handout with a brief outline on it if you wanted that, but you won't necessarily need it. Romans 3.23, and we'll be going uh, through to verse 25 This one more time like this, and then I think we'll be moving forward again. Another important word we need to go over today. The sermon's called Redemption's Coin. Redemption's Coin. So from verse 23 of chapter 3, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. This is maybe one of the most crucial phrases in the New Testament, this part of the book of Romans really is vital for every Christian to be familiar with these words and the flow of the argument that has been given to you and I as as believers. So the phrase begins in, in 23, saying what we're guilty of, or all of sin we're guilty of. Everyone is guilty. And then justified freely. The universal guilt of all the men in the creation, and then justification announced and not so much described yet in this place, but as as Paul suggests, that righteousness that that he mentions in chapter 1, his joy in the gospel is, is the righteousness of God that is revealed, the power of God that is revealed. Justified freely by His grace, and we're going to spend some time speaking about free justification next week, because free justification really, really is um, such a unique distinctive to the gospel. It's such a unique truth to the gospel that, frankly, many get wrong. Many get this very wrong, and we want to be careful to understand what is meant by justified freely by His grace. And what we were covering last week is is this phrase, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We we spent the hour last week discussing redemption and and what that means. And and I I think you know, but I just want to remind you what we cover in every any given Sunday on justification. Redemption. Today we're looking at the word propitiation. We're we're just we're just going over the top. We're, uh, there's so much more to mine out in these things, and I want to encourage you to to try to follow along. This has been an exceptionally theological couple of three or four weeks here, covering the word justification and redemption, and today propitiation. But man, these are crucial words to you and I really understanding the gospel. It. It, it, it will make your own preaching, your own heart more effective. It will make your own rest and confidence in the gospel more deep and more solid. But we, we have this, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then the next phrase says, so redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. Jesus Christ, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Some really, really key phrases here. Justification is the greatest gift in the world. 
the more you and I understand what has been accomplished in justification, truly, the more you and I should marvel at what has been done for a man or a woman who, whose hope is in the death and life of Christ. It, it is the stunning gift of all time. Righteousness of God, that is God's righteousness by faith in Christ through redemption. Truly, truly amazing. Now, redemption is, as you recall, has to do with buying. You and I are at least familiar enough with the word redemption. We get the, the some of the buying aspect of it because we have a little bit of recollection in our own American history of what it might mean to redeem a slave, right? And we have that great picture in the book of, of Exodus, the, the Hebrew slaves of the nation of Egypt are redeemed. They're, they're purchased out of Egypt and given freedom to go and serve the Lord in, in the promised land. So redeemed, removed from sin's bondage, removed from hell's death is, is a Christian reality when we're thinking about redemption. Removed from the ownership of sin. Removed from the threat of death. Offered an inheritance. Given sonship. Offered a, a valid hope to see God pleased and accepting of you and I at the last day. Redemption is just a, a glorious truth, a purchasing from one to another. The justified have a new master, don't they? Do the justified have a new master? They do. They've been redeemed. They've been purchased from sin. They've been purchased from the, the, the curse of the law and given eternal life. Romans 6.18 says, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Christians don't like being considered slaves of anything in our century. We just have this love of this uh, lawless concept of, of God's grace. But the Christian has been set free from sin and has become slaves of righteousness. But here in, in verse 25, the Redeemer has done something. The Redeemer himself has been moved. The Redeemer is acted on, it says there in verse 25. And so there's a passive verb there. The Lord Jesus Christ is set forth. Redemption has taken place. God the Father has set the Redeemer forth as a propitiation through faith in His blood. So we really got to, I think we got to do some work, and I, I hope you enjoy looking at some of these uh, texts together as we really try to get our minds around propitiation through faith and blood. What is the point of the blood in propitiation? Justification is like the big word, right? Justification is a big theological thing that happens to someone who has put their faith in Christ and in the shed blood of Christ. Justified. Justified whose root word is the same as the root word in righteousness. So, righteousified. Right? Faith in the shed blood of Christ makes this person who has that saving faith righteous. The righteousness of God justifying him. So justification is redemption and justification is blood propitiation. It's not the same thing, but both of these things are part of justification. So I think it would be proper for you and I to say that God has propitiated himself. God has propitiated himself by the blood of Christ for those who believe. Because we see in the, in the verse, God has set forth the Redeemer as a propitiation by faith in his blood. God has set him forth. 
God is the one who needs to be propitiated. Each of these words and subjects is going to get deeper as we work through the message. But God himself has set forth the Redeemer, the propitiatory. The one to take the wrath of God has been set forth by God. He set him forth himself for those who believe. The sinner terrified of God's wrath. And honestly, I'm not sure if we can come to salvation unless we really begin to understand the fear of God's wrath. I don't think anybody turns to God for salvation unless we biblically begin to understand the, the horror of facing judgment without the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel message, isn't it? So we, what we find for the sinner who is terrified of God's wrath is there, there, there's, there's two extremes here. There is a horrible and a glorious provision made in the propitiation by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's horrible and it's glorious. So let's take a few minutes and try to define the word propitiation. It's a challenging word to define. It gets used in, its root word gets used in different ways throughout both the Old and the New Testament. So there's a a word in 1 John 2, 2. Um, Let's look at that together. 1 John 2, 2. Don't, Don't lose your place there in Romans. But 1 John 2, 2 uses this word in a way I think it'll be easy for you to understand. 1 John 2, 2. And he himself, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He's speaking about the sins and the propitiation for sins. Okay, so this is this is almost the same use as the one here in Romans chapter 3. He has been made a propitiation. And as we work through these definitions in your own mind, it's going to become more and more clear what we're talking about. And this is why we're looking at these words in these different contexts. It's going to help you define what this word means by how it's used in different places in the scripture. It's going to get really clear in about 10 minutes. Initially, not so much so. So, our Lord Jesus has become a propitiation. That's one use of it. Another use of the word is a place of propitiation. The place of propitiation. And here in Romans 3, in a sense, we can see that, can't we? Can can we see that the Lord Jesus is, in a sense, the place of propitiation? And this will make a lot more sense when we finally get to uh, Hebrews 9, which we won't get to just yet. But look with me briefly at Luke 18. Look at Luke 18, 13. And you'll see another use of this root word. It's the same word in Greek. And the word itself isn't so important as the idea. How, how do we understand? How are we supposed to think about what it means that God set forth the Lord Jesus as a propitiation. So look at this word in Luke 18. We read this two weeks ago. The tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful, be merciful, is the same root word. So I could say this, and I don't know if any of you would know what this meant in a sentence, which is probably the reason the translators didn't write this, but I could say, Lord, be propitious to me. Lord, be propitious to me. Lord, be merciful to me. It it means that this person is asking for a certain attitude of satisfaction to himself. When another... Attitude is possible. What is the other attitude that could be possible to the penitent sinner here? He is rightly expecting wrath. 
He knows what a dreadful sinner he is. This is what this little parable story is in the book of Luke. He knows he is lower than low. And so he goes to God low. He goes to God seeking mercy or propitiousness. Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, be propitious to me. Remember, mercy is what we seek and long for when we know we deserve wrath. When you deserve a spanking, when you deserve a thousand dollar fine, when you deserve a beating because you have done wrong and you ask not to get it, you're asking for mercy. That is the meaning of the word mercy. God, be propitious to me. Please don't give me what I deserve. That's what that word means. So, the Lord has become propitious. It's, 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 in that sense, it's an offering. It's going to become more clear in a moment. It is a place of propitiation, and it is this merciful hope is what the word propitiation means. So Christ is the propitiation for the sins of believers. Propitiation is an offering and a place and a deed. Propitiation is an offering, it is a place, and it is a deed. The offering itself can be a propitiation. The deed is a propitiation. And the place it's done is a propitiation. Look at Hebrews 9 and verse 5. Hebrews 9 and verse 5. This, this word is probably one of the key words to help really opening up the meaning of this word. Hebrews 9, 5. All of my Hebrews pages are so stuck together now. Almost need a new Bible. Hebrews 9.5. Back up at least one because we're right in the middle of the sentence there in verse 5. 4 begins saying, which had the golden censer. So what's in the ark? It had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the tablets of the covenant, and above it, so above it, were the cherubim of glory. Above what? Above the ark. Above the ark of the covenant. Right? It's in the holy of holies, covered with gold. Above it are the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. This word, mercy seat, is the same word. Remember a moment ago I said it can be the place of propitiation. So the word mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5 is this word propitiatory or place of propitiation. The same word. So here in Hebrews 9, much of the whole chapter here is bringing us to the tabernacle, bringing us to the Ark of the Covenant that is inside the tabernacle. And the mercy seat, we'll review this, but the mercy seat is where you make atonement on the Day of Atonement. It's where you make propitiation. Now, this word in the book of Hebrews is in Greek. This is the language of the New Testament, Greek. The language of the Old Testament is not Greek. So if we want to know what did the Old Testament people mean by the mercy seat, what did they mean? It's hard to find in Greek until you find something like this because this is a Hebrew thing. Do we know about the mercy seat in the Hebrew world? Of course we do. We can go back and we can read Exodus and Leviticus and we can find out about mercy seat in Hebrew. So we can follow this word here in Greek, find out what did they call it in Hebrew. And let's find out what they were talking about when they were talking about this thing in Hebrew. So this is why this is a helpful verse here. This is pointing us all the way back to the Old Covenant under Moses. 
So this idea of mercy seat here, where, where is that going to take us? Because in the Old Testament, this word, phrase in English is 22 times. It's mentioned a lot in English in the Old Testament. The mercy seat is mentioned 22 times. What word is that in the Hebrew? Hmm. In a sense, again, it doesn't really matter what the word is, but we're going to follow around the meaning of this word in a couple of spots in the Old Testament so you can get your minds around what are we talking about and what's going on in this propitiation. In Romans chapter 3, what's the subject? Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Propitiation is mentioned in about five places in the New Testament, and it's tied to this Old Testament word, mercy seat, that is mentioned 22 times in the Old Testament. This is how the thought is flowing for us so far. So look at Exodus 25:17. We'll see the identical word. When the Old Testament is written in Greek, we're going to see this exact same word, mercy seat. It's called the Septuagint. There is a Greek form of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And this word is going to be used in Exodus 25, 17. You guys there? You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now, remember, they don't speak English, so it could have said propitiatory. A place of propitiating. A place for making atonement is the word. Kaporet is the Hebrew word, and I don't know how to speak Hebrew, so don't ever quote me. It doesn't matter. Kaporet, okay? Kaporet is this word. So this is what Moses is hearing from God. How is the kaporet to be built? What are its dimensions? What are its what is it for? Inside the Hebrew tabernacle and outside the Hebrew tabernacle is the center of the Hebrews' faith in God and how they are going to relate to him. Right? The tabernacle is where the priest ministers. The tabernacle is where you bring a sacrifice when you've sinned against God. This is the middle of a spiritual life of the Hebrew people around the tabernacle. And this place inside the Holy of Holies, which is where the ark is, that is called the mercy seat or the place of propitiation or the place of atonement. Okay, This is what it is. And the high priest himself is taught... He's taught by the succeeding priests. God himself teaches Aaron and his sons. And then from generation to generation, they're taught what they're to do. They bring a sacrifice into this place one time a year. And it's outlined in Leviticus 16. You need to turn to Leviticus 16 with me for a minute. Because this is where all of the activity under Hebrew spiritual life takes place around the mercy seat around the place of atonement. Leviticus chapter 16. Read verse 2. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Oh, there it is. Leviticus 16.2. And the Lord said to Moses, remember this is why Moses is a prophet. God speaks to him. The Lord said to Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil. It's behind the curtain. This is the holy of holy places. Aaron cannot go in there whenever he wants to go in there. Within the veil, before the mercy seat, before the propitiatory, which is upon the ark. It's the lid on the ark. That he die not. If he comes in here when he's not supposed to come in here, he will die. For I will appear in cloud upon the mercy seat. We see the very presence of God above the mercy seat. And so there is a ceremony. There is a ceremony yearly for appeasing God. We're going to look at a couple more verses here in Leviticus chapter 16. But this is part of Israel's 
moral requirement so that God can remain appeased or favorable toward their sinfulness. This is how they appease God. This is how they appease His wrath and His holiness. It's where the nation, the entire nation, makes an offering to God for its sinfulness. What does the priest bring into the Holy of Holies? Blood. The priest brings blood into the Holy of Holies. He brings the blood of an animal that must be as perfect as they have. The animal, in this case, there's a a, a bullock, and then there's also a goat. There are two different sacrifices made in the Holy of Holies in Leviticus 16. And this animal must meet the, the qualifications of the examiner that the animal is actually perfect enough so that the blood of the animal is acceptable in the sacrifice. If the animal is not defect-free, then its blood is of no use in this ceremony. He must be a ceremonially pure animal to meet God's requirement that will atone for the nation's sins. This is called the Day of Atonement. This is called the Day of Atonement. Look at Leviticus 16.3, verse 3. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. So here we see the the animals are selected. The blood of the animals are brought inside. Look at verse 11. Skip down a little bit. Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. The one making the offering has to make an offering for himself first and make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Look at verse 14. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side and before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So here the blood is placed on the mercy seat itself and before the mercy seat. Now look at verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Verse 16, so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, you, I I can't pronounce Hebrew, Kippur and Kipporet. You make atonement on the thing of atonement. There's a verb and there's a noun. You kippur the kaporet. These two words involve the thing that needs to be done and the place where it is supposed to be done. This is Yom Kippur. It is the day of atonement. And this is how Israel would make atonement for the national sins. Every year, they propitiate on a propitiatory. You propitiate on a propitiatory. This is what's happening here. So now let's think a little bit about the lifeblood of remission. This is the next thing we're going to look at in regard to what propitiation is. You have an idea of what propitiation is under the, under the old covenant law, under the practice of the tabernacle and the priesthood. Propitiation is this mainly this work of making this yearly offering in the Holy of Holies. Now I want to speak specifically about blood and lifeblood for remission 
which we're going to find out about back in Hebrews chapter 9. So go with me again now to Hebrews chapter 9. Remember, Hebrews 9 is where we saw this mention of the ark in the lid of the ark that brings us back into the context of the Old Testament. And so now we're going to go back into the New Testament Hebrews where it's been discussing this. And there we understand a little more fully what it is that a propitiation is and and what it does. So in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, we read that Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal Redemption. You see how he is doing the high priest's work in the heavenly tabernacle, which is a redemption. With what? Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh? In other words, if it was effective for the Hebrews under the terms of the Old Covenant to get them from year to year, if this would assuage God's wrath for that year, if it was effective for that purpose, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Christ himself brings his blood, the blood of himself, into the holy place acquiring eternal redemption. The title of the sermon is Redemption's Coin. How do you purchase redemption? How do you do it? How do you buy it? The Lord Jesus brings His blood into the Holy of Holies, makes a redemption. There is a payment. What is the payment? It is the blood of the Savior into the holy place, obtaining eternal redemption. He offers himself without spot. We read that plainly. Spotless, legally pure. He is himself, he has himself the blood of a spotless sacrifice. The Lamb of God, verse 12 says, by his own blood he entered in verse 12. His own blood he entered. Blood. The blood of the Lamb of God. The blood of the Lamb of God is what had been pictured for thousands of years of tabernacle and then temple life, of bringing these sacrifices into the temple. Verses 13 and 14 compares the blood of bulls and their sanctifying versus the more excellent nature, the more excellent quality of the cleansing and the redeeming of the blood of the perfect lamb versus that of the bulls and goats because this sacrifice goes all the way to the cleansing of conscience verse 15 is is one of the key things because we understand that the blood look at verse 15 for this reason he is mediator of the new covenant by means of death I want you to make sure you notice the connection between the blood of the Redeemer and death. It's not pricking your finger and getting you know just enough blood to do it. It's actually the, the blood is almost code for death, but the sacrifice itself that is made on the propitiatory is the life blood. And that's why it's called life blood. It, it is the offering that costs the life 
of the one who made the sacrifice. So by means of death. So the perfect the perfect tabernacle not made by hands, that's Christ himself? That's the heavenly tabernacle that when Moses was instructed how to make it, he was told how to make a tabernacle that is in the eternal realm, that is right. in the kingdom. And so Christ brings the offering into the Holy of Holies and makes his offering inside the Holy of Holies in, in the eternal uh, place, wherever that is in God's place. So this indicates that the blood offering, the blood offering that is under the old covenant is the death and the blood offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is redemption? It is the life blood of the Lord Jesus Christ offered to redeem his people. Hebrews 9.22 finally. And according to the law, Almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no remission. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission. Under the old covenant, the blood gives us a shadow of this reality. Remember, the, the, the Old Testament gives us these, these hard cultural pictures, these historic pictures of these traditions that we interpret and understand under the new covenant as pointing us to Christ and the greater work of Christ who is the perfect antitype remember these things under the old covenant are the object that stand in the light of eternity and as the light hits that thing under the old covenant the, the thing that appears on the ground is the real thing I know that sounds backwards, but types and antitypes go together like trees and shadows. And the Lord Jesus is the thing that we are supposed to see in this old covenant picture we're shown in the tabernacle. So the blood and the life given for the blood is the cost of redemption. And there is no remission of sin without the giving of blood. Remission means forgiveness. So remember, the wage of sin is death. The wage of sin is death. But if there's remission of this, then there might be life, right? In order to be released from the law's requirement of death, in order to be released from the law's requirement of death, God would accept lifeblood of the perfect lamb. The wage of sin is death. If you want to give your death for eternity, it's as if to say you are free to do so. You're, you're free to give your life for eternity and die for eternity and go to hell. To suffer God's wrath for eternity or the lifeblood of the Son can be accepted as a substitute sacrifice. So propitiation is the killing of a perfect life, bringing its blood into the holy place, and presenting this life at the mercy seat, on the mercy seat, before the mercy seat. The mercy seat... You know, it, it covers the tablets of the law. The mercy seat is the lid that is right over the tablets of the law. And in a sense, we've, we've mentioned this in the past, but the law that is in there is a judge in the sense. The law is the thing that knows and insists on your life. The law is the reason that you must eternally die under the judgment of God. The law is that that exposes the just requirement of your life for eternity. So the law is a judge, in a sense, and the law is constant, relentless, unchanging charge is guilty. There is no man who will come before the law and find the law saying, whoa, you are quite a specimen. <laughs> you are free to go into heaven. The law will never say that. 
No man will be justified by works of the law. It is the reason men must die eternally for sinners. It is The law is the reflection of God's perfect justice, his perfect rightness, his perfect holiness. And so the law, its requirement, the law's due requirement, the, the, the natural thing that must come for the law is the work of God's wrath against the sinner. It's like warmth from the sun. The wrath of God is the response of God to unjustice and unrighteousness. And the law just shows where it is. I used to occasionally have to do uh, cleaning stuff as a handyman in apartments when somebody moved out. And if there's animal urine in an apartment, you can't see it with your naked eye. But you know what you can see it with? A black light. Turn off the lights and shine a black light in the corners and boop, pops right out. And then you know where to clean. The law shows which men are sinners. And the men who are found sinners must endure the wrath of God. It's a law. It's the law. That's what the law does. This this is why blood is required for propitiation. This is why blood is a necessary component of giving justification and redemption and eternal life. Propitiation meets the demands of the law so that the one who is guilty under the law can be free and live eternally. Turn to Isaiah 52. Turn to Isaiah 52. Try to put a tiny bit of meat on the bones. Isaiah 52, I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm. In the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Redemption and salvation hand in glove right here in Isaiah 52, 9 and 10. Jump with me now to 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. There's two two he's here, two persons here. One is Messiah. One is the God of heaven. So he, the Messiah, he, the one who takes on flesh, will grow up before him who is in heaven as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground he has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. You see the suffering servant here. There's a picture of a servant carrying griefs and sorrows, and he's smitten. He's smitten by God. He's struck. Verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. You can picture the scourging that was given to the Lord Jesus or even a crown of thorns that was forced down over his head, causing him to bleed along with the scourging. Look at the next line. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Do you see how there is something cruel and vicious taking place to this one 
that has a direct effect on the redeemed. Do you see how the redeemed are profiting at the cost and the and the suffering of the Messiah? Chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. We, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why why is there sin placed on this one who has done no wrong? It's called a propitiation. His taking the wickedness of men on himself and why is God causing him to suffer? Why is God chastising him? Why is he suffering this way? It is the wrath of God. The lamb is taking the wrath of God. The lamb is a propitiatory. The lamb is under the wrath of God so that those who believe in him would not have to face his wrath. He is a propitiation. He himself bore the sins. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He is a sacrifice. God's sacrifice. Why is God bringing a sacrifice to the Holy of Holies if not to make a propitiation? He's redeeming his people. He is paying the price of wrath for his people. Verse 8, he was taken from the prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generations? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. You see, the great compassion and self-sacrifice of God on behalf of his How do we call ourselves? Sinful men, rebellious men, God-hating men. He, 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 he hasn't reserved this for the saintly. It's for transgressors. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence. He was an innocent. He was a perfect lamb. He had done no violence. He, he didn't die for any of his own sins. There was no deceit in his mouth. The passage continues to exalt his qualification as a right offering, a pure offering. Finally, verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The better translation is crush. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Over and over again, we see that the Messiah here is is suffering under the wrath of God. And he has certainly bled. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. He is a propitiation. He is a propitiatory sacrifice. He shall see his seed. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Justification by the suffering of the Messiah. He's paying for something so that his many would be made just, would be redeemed. His many would have no obligation to receive or endure the wrath of God because he had endured it for them. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
Justification is possible because he has borne the iniquities of those who had put their trust in him, of those who had put their hope and faith in him. He's smitten, he's beaten, he's struck, he's crushed. And when we ponder God's unsearchable wisdom in how the gospel is possible, how, how can sinners be saved? How can people who sin against God over and over again truly have the righteousness that God requires? How is it possible? We can't undo the years behind us. We can't undo the hours behind us. How is it that your unrighteousness and your ungodliness is replaced with righteousness and godliness and favor? How is it you escape the wrath of God that is due all ungodliness. How is it possible in God's incredible wisdom, in God's unsearchable wisdom, He devised a plan that the perfect man, the perfect second Adam, would live such perfection and such righteousness and then offer His own blood as an offering sufficient for all those who would put their hope and trust in Him. We have no fear of judgment at the end of the age because the Lamb has taken all of the wrath of God on the behalf of you who truly trust in Him and hope in Him. It is a glorious, incredible, mind-boggling truth. God exercised His own wrath of justice on the Son, who has become a propitiation. He is a propitiation. God's wrath is done being poured out for those He has saved. And by His suffering and His bleeding and His dying, He has, he has paid the price. He's paid the sinner's debt. The Redeemer justified by paying the blood price of life. He's God's lamb. He's God's substitute. You see how blood at the mercy seat is part of your and my response to, to what our hope for eternal life is? What does the law say to you? You deserve death. What does the blood over the law say to God? The blood over the law says life has been paid. Life has been paid. The wage has been paid. Oh, I hope you take some time this afternoon and ponder the great love of God that has been shown to men. And the suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom justified sinners like you and me I hope you'll hope you'll fear the God who must hate and punish sin and I hope you'll love the God who paid the sinner's debt with the blood of his own son I hope that you'll take some time and worship the Lord today reflect on the great great love and sacrifice God has made for you